Good morning. We're getting there. We're getting there. It's all right, John. Good morning. Glad you could be here. Happy Father's Day. I told a dad joke in our meeting at the beginning, uh, and I, in our uh, service meeting, and I didn't even realize I told a dad joke. The sermon today is about um, Jesus walking on the water, and somebody asked me about when um, my final application point was, and I said, it's still fluid. Ha. It was not intentional. That's what's bad. I'm to that point in being a father that I'm telling dad jokes and don't even realize it. Oh, that's not a... There's no recovery from that moment in time. Uh, We are continuing through the book of Mark. We are on Mark chapter 6. We're going to look at verses... uh, 45 through the end of the chapter, which is 56. So when you get your, a chance, if you could turn there to Mark 6, we're going to read this together, uh, starting at verse 45. If you would stand with me as we read, uh, starting at verse 45 of Mark chapter 6, it says, Immediately his disciples got into the boat. I'm sorry. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where while he dismissed the crowd, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astonished. But they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. And ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on, the, on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would minister to our hearts, that you would speak truth to us that you would give us uh, uh, insight into your word. Father, we thank you for this account where you were teaching your disciples. And Father, I pray that we might enter into a school with you this morning to be taught of you. Um, We worship you because you are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We live in a day and age where the motto is look within yourself for strength and power. And there's a, a, almost a worship of uh, self-will. We have a society, a country that was founded upon a, a principle that we are going to uh, uh, get ourselves up by our own bootstraps and work. And, and, and these are good things in a sense. Um, but the, the understanding that true power comes from within um, couldn't be further from the truth and is one of Satan's greatest lies that he has spread. And as we walk through this text, I hope that we can see that. And as we, we look and examine what's going on here, there's, there's Mark is a fascinating book. The first uh, multiple chapters, probably through about chapter 4, um, the, the, the thought of Mark as he has been transcribing this has been to really uh, lay out for us the case that Jesus is the Messiah, He's the Christ, He's the Son of God. And so uh, the miracles that are, are written in, in the Gospel of Mark at the very beginning are all about Christ being the King. It's establishing His authority. And then as, it, as we start to get into the later chapters, specifically starting at, really at chapter 6, the, the gears shift from Jesus' ministry and establishing His authority as King to teaching those men He was going to leave behind to establish the church. 
And so there's just a lot of teaching that goes on. And, and what's amazing is we look through this, you can miss a lot. And, and I just want to put the context on this text first. You know, what's been going on? We've had a couple of a weeks back into Mark. And, and, and last week, uh, Stephen talked about um, the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000. And, and what's fascinating is, you know, just to look at, at the schedule, the itinerary of what's going on these last couple of days in the text, Okay. So Jesus, if you remember, uh, about a month ago we talked about how he sent out the disciples on these missionary journeys. He sends them out on their missionary journey, and then uh, last week we kind of talked about how they had returned at the very beginning of of verse 30. It says the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done. So they went out on their missionary journey, and then they came back and they gave their reports of what's going on. And then uh, Jesus says, that's great. And, and what's fascinating is that they were just, they were so busy. It tells us in, in this text in verse 31 that they were coming and going during this whole reporting. And, and, and people, you know, these disciples are going around and doing all this stuff and they're coming and going that they don't even have time to, to eat. So Jesus says, all right, it's time to just pause. And they're going to have some rest and relaxation and and. and Sure enough, in that same day, so they're, they're having the, the, uh, the reports. And this is, keep in mind, this is all same day. Jesus says, we're going we're gonna to pause. We're going to have some rest. And, and as they're resting, the crowd starts swelling. People find out that Jesus is there. And He begins to have compassion on them. It says that He teaches them. And He shares with them. And then in, in, it gets later in the day. Um, most likely, it's about 3 p.m., same day, and there's hunger. So Jesus does this incredible miracle. He feeds the 5,000. Okay, so that's the, the context of where we're jumping into to verse 45. So they've been fed sometime, same day, sometime maybe after, uh, after 3 p.m. They've been fed, uh, and uh, starting at verse 45, it starts to grow darker, it's evening. And that's what leads us into our story. And there's significance in all this. I said that Jesus is teaching His disciples. What I find fascinating is we keep in mind this concept of power. Jesus is trying to teach His disciples. And and you'll notice that Jesus has, in this text, will be the third task that Jesus gives the disciples in this short time frame. So first task, he says, go and preach the gospel, proclaim, and by the way, don't take anything. Jesus is trying to teach them something. He says, go out and share the good news that the kingdom is coming and that I am here and and, and go and do it. That's the first task. The second task is uh, everybody in in this teaching moment is starting to grow hungry. What does Jesus say? He says, you feed them. So first task, go and don't take anything, but be dependent upon me, essentially. Second task, you feed them, even though I know you could never afford to feed them right now, and it would take a lot of work and effort, and, but go feed them without money. And now, he looks at his disciples and it says he immediately makes them get into the boat and go to the other side And I want you to understand that with each of these tasks, Jesus asked them to do something knowing full well that they would face adversity in each and every one. To go out and and be utterly dependent on having no extra preparations, to go and feed 5,000 plus people with, with nothing, and to cross the lake in a storm that was brewing. And you'll notice this is the second time the disciples have gone on a boat in a storm. We talk about these being lessons for the disciples. Storm 101 was that Jesus was there with them in the boat. Remember, He was sleeping. He was present with them. Storm 102 now. This is the advanced class. Go without me. We want to keep those in mind because what... Why all of this? Why is it important? It's an important lesson on power and strength that will be essential for all those who would claim to be the disciples of Jesus. Three tasks. 
that will clearly do two things. Number one, they will show visibly, clearly, the weakness of man. And second, the power and might of Jesus Christ. So if you want to get one thing from today's sermon, get this one basic point. The glory of Christ's might is most clearly seen The glory of Christ's might, His power, His strength is most clearly seen in the greatness of man's weakness. This is an important lesson that all of us need to have. This is an important lesson that we need to have as a church body. This is a lesson we need to have as individuals. That the glory of Christ's might and power is most clearly seen in the greatness of our own weaknesses. And that's what Jesus wants to teach them. We must understand that we will never see true power in our lives, in the life of the church, in the life of, of a disciple, until we get rid of our own vision of our own power. Until we can get rid of this false idea of our own power, we will never see the greatness of Christ's power. Our world tells us that power comes from within, from self will, independence, but it's a lie. Listen, I'm stubborn, and I, I, like, to, I, I like to push on. Um, uh, uh, it's part of the reason why I have this boot on, is because I'm stubborn, and I'm, I'm, I don't like to ask for help. I don't do it, because I take pride in being able to do things on my own. I, I think I aggravated my leg the other day because I'm stupid, and, and I was out in my woods trying to clear a trail, and there was a, about a... a 16-inch diameter tree that had fallen across. Well, what do you do when you're out there by yourself? You grab the axe and you start hacking at it, and then you pick up this ridiculous log and move it out of the way. It's great to do, and then when you're really stupid, you kick it with your boot. Okay? Why do we do that? Because we think I can, men as fathers, I can do it. We take pride in in showing our children that we can do it. But the reality is, that is the farthest thing from the truth. But we have been ingrained with this. And as we look at this story, and and having all that as the context, I think this story is amazing to me. Uh, uh, There's so much we lose in the English. It's incredible. So we're going to walk through the story with that context in mind and just kind of walk through uh, the, the, the events that go on. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I kind of have some alliteration to it, but don't feel bad if you miss some of it because um, they're just helpful tidbits for me. So the first thing we see is a pressing task. A pressing task. It says immediately. Mark obviously likes to use the word immediately. He does it over and over again. But immediately, it says, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Immediately. There is a sense of urgency. Again, the Greek here, and I'm going to reference the Greek a number of times this morning, not because I expect you to be Greek scholars, but because I think there's so much depth here this morning with this. The Greek word is stern. He constrained them. He said it was with urgency. It was, it was a matter, it was a pressing matter. He's like, get in the boat. He was, he was gentle with them, but he was, he was demanding of it. It was a command. It was a sense of urgency. Why? Why? Well, John, uh, this is going to be so important for you guys that I would encourage you when you go home to look at the other gospel accounts to read them all together of this story of Jesus walking on the water because there's there's parts that Mark gives us for specific reasons, there's parts that John gives us, there's parts that Matthew gives us, and those are the three accounts that that record it. In John chapter 6, we're told why. In John chapter 6, verse 15, it says that the crowd was thrilled with having their bellies filled. And this mob of somewhere between 5,000 and probably upwards of 15,000 people wanted to make him king right now. They said, this guy is awesome. He is the, some said he's the Messiah. Some were just happy that they had their bellies filled and they don't know where it came from. But isn't it true that in, in our world today, if you want to be political and win elections, you start giving handouts. Because what people want is a sense of what God, or I'm sorry, what people will give them. What are you going to offer me? That's what we have as a society. What are you going to offer me? What you offer me will definitely speak to my heart. And in this case, Jesus, not, it was not his purpose, but his actions ended up speaking to a lot of people's bellies. And that is not what Jesus wanted. Jesus didn't want to be made king here. 
That was never his intent. And so you can imagine the scene with these 10,000, 15,000 people turned into a mob with, with a lot of power saying, let's make this guy king. They're tired of the Roman oppression and they're like, we're going we're gonna to end this right now because this guy is amazing. He can do miraculous things and he, he heals people. He feeds us. He does everything for us. Surely he'll protect us and he'll give us victory over the Romans. And the disciples probably like this idea too, don't you think? I mean, that's what they wanted. They wanted a Messiah. They had a wrong idea of Jesus all the time, uh, over and over again. In fact, later on, when we get to the end of this chapter, you'll see that they, they clearly didn't understand what was going on. So they probably wanted it. And so Jesus is probably like, no, no, I want you guys in the boat so you don't get caught up in this. So he's pushing them. Note, for Jesus, a wrong concept of himself is far more dangerous than the storm he was sending them into. It is far more dangerous to have the wrong concept and idea of who Jesus is and what He is than the dangers that you will face in standing up for truth. He will always gladly send us into a trial, a storm, than allow us to create false concepts of who He is. Because He loves us and He wants us to understand who He is and what His purpose is. He had to convince his disciples. And know what the text says. I love this. It says he, he made them get into his disciples. He made his disciples get into the boat and go before him, it says. Go before him. He was assuring them he was coming. Jesus never sends us to a place he does not go. He was going. I imagine, you know, as I'm sitting there trying to ponder through what the story was like, you know, the scene being there, you know, Jesus is rushing them into the boat saying, go, go, go. And, and, and I imagine them thinking, you know, okay, but we want to be with you. You know, you're, and he's saying, well, I'll, I'll go. I'm, you just go ahead of me. And, and, and they're looking around saying, okay, there's boats here. We're getting in. And how are you getting across? That's what I would be wondering. If you're coming, yeah, right. How are you getting here? So he sends the disciples away, and then it says that he, uh, he sends them to the other side of Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. There is something going on in the text that we don't have time to dive a lot into, but it is fascinating. Mark's, uh, uh, the way he, he tells the story is this huge explosion of characters on the scene, right? 5,000 plus, the disciples, and gradually he's dwindling down the characters. And you'll notice what the text says. That when he had dismissed the crowd, after he had taken leave of them, he went on the mountainside to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on sea and he was alone. Dwindling down of characters. Just one. Jesus. It's a pressing test. Second thing we want to look at here is a powerful truth. Notice what the text says. It says he dismissed the crowd, and after he had taken leave of them, what does it say? He went up on a mountain to pray. That is a powerful truth that we need to get into our minds. Jesus needed to pray. Jesus, the Son of God, needed the Father. Think about that. When we think of Power, and we say oftentimes we hear that power is being self-sufficient, uh, independent, uh, self-sustaining, self, self, self. We have Jesus, the ultimate embodiment of power. And what does it say? He needed to pray. He was dependent on the Father. Let that sink in. Imagine though, you know, for just a moment, because Jesus is fully man, imagine the temptations that Jesus had faced that day. Imagine a large crowd uh, uh, coming and, and, and it had been a long day of teaching and miracles and doing what the disciples could not do. He had to do for them. You feed them. Oh, you can't. Okay, let me divide up this bread and fish and feed the 5,000 plus. Let me do the work. Jesus is always constantly doing it. And then the temptation of, well, let's make him king. Don't you think for just a minute that it would have been a lot easier for Jesus to become king than go to the cross? It would have been a lot more appealing. 
Maybe it was even an appeal to pride. Now we know that Jesus was without sin, but that doesn't mean he couldn't have faced the temptation. Look at what he would have faced. After all of that going on, I imagine he needed to go back to the Father and have fellowship. He was dependent on God the Father. Perfect power still dependent on the Father. If Jesus needs the Father, what does that mean for us? It's a powerful truth. The next thing that happens is is what I would call a painful trial. And this is fascinating. It says, And when evening came, the boat was out on sea, and he was alone on land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And it was about the fourth watch of the night. He came to them walking on the sea. Pause there, and let's, let's talk about this. The first thing I want you to see is that it says he saw them. He saw them. What does that mean? I I want you to comprehend this, okay? Because this is fascinating. And if you just cursory glance at this, you miss some incredible insights. There's a confounding nature to that. There's the distance, right? Okay, so in Matthew, we're told, in Matthew 14, Matthew's account of it, it says that they were a long way from land. In John's account, he actually tells us exactly how far they were. So the Sea of Galilee is about seven miles wide, and it says that they were three and a half miles from shore. What time of the day is it? Fourth watch of the night. For those of you who don't know what that is, it means that it's somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. I don't know how many of you are up at 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. That's really early. But if you go outside, how far do you think you can see? When I look outside, if I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm getting older, and so I have to wake up in the middle of the night to go to the restroom. When I look out the window, I see about 10 feet. Think about that. It says that Jesus saw them. They were three and a half miles out. And guess what? It wasn't just that it was dark. It wasn't just that he was three and a half mi- that they were three and a half miles away. It was also stormy. It says that the winds were blowing. Matthew tells us that the winds were creating waves that beat against the boat. So Jesus is miraculously seeing out three and a half miles. It's hard enough to see three and a half miles on a clear day, let alone a, at night in a dark, stormy cloud. Brothers and sisters, take hope in that, that He sees. The caring nature of it was this. In their darkest hour, <coughs> He was watching them. In their darkest hour, in that moment where they were out there, He was watching them. John chapter 17, we get a glimpse as Jesus prays to the Father of how much He loved and cared for these men. In verse 12 of John chapter 17, He says, While I was with them, I kept them in Your name which You have given Me. I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction. In Luke 22, uh, uh, we get a glimpse of Jesus' heart as He speaks to Peter. And He says to Peter, uh, He tells him about uh, when Peter in his boldness says, everybody may deny you, but I won't. And, And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. He's asked to destroy you, but I have prayed for you. In their darkest hour, Jesus is watching and He's caring and He's, and he's keeping eye on them. It's a reminder to us that in our darkest hours, He sees us. Countless times in Scripture, when Paul is in prison in Acts chapter 23, it says that the Lord visited him in the night. And he said, don't worry, Paul, I got this. Even Thomas, the doubting disciple, it says that when he, was, was he, he, he missed Jesus the first time, and then Thomas is with the disciples the second time, and they're all in the room, and it says that the door was locked, 
and yet Jesus came and stood amongst them. And you know what? Jesus says, Thomas, I know you don't believe. Touch. You know why? He doesn't ask, well, what's going on here? What do you mean? What, what, why do you doubt? He knew because he was watching. Those disciples were scared, petrified in an upper room, locked up. Why? Because of fear. Even Stephen, as he's being stoned, it says that he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He was standing because he was watching. Jesus is watching even the darkest moments of our lives. And in their hardships, it says that he comes. It says, and after he had taken leave of them, when he went up on the mountain to pray, and when evening came, the boat was out on sea, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. In their hardships, he comes to them. It says he saw that they were making headway painfully. Brothers and sisters, that English does not do it justice. The word painfully there in the Greek literally means cruel, torturous. The concept is of, of a dungeon, with, and this is literally what the Greek context is. It means that a person is being uh, uh, tortured for information. Put on a rack, that's the, the, the picture that is given. They were being tortured, constrained, strained. Why? Think about it. They left at about 7 or 8 p.m. They were rowing. I don't know about you, I, I see the rowing machines at the Y and I want nothing to do with them. They were rowing. Hurts your back, hurts your hands. But they weren't just rowing. For a little bit. They left at like 7 or 8 and Jesus comes to them at what time? Between 3 and 6 a.m. That's, if you do the math, somewhere between 8 and 9 hours. I hate rowing for 10 minutes. They had been rowing because the wind was pushing against them. They couldn't make headway, it says. They were going three and a half miles it took them. Eight to nine hours. Can you imagine? I, I did a Spartan race here recently. And, and uh, uh, Kyle Carroll was with me and, and, and he was on the ropes and blood blisters everywhere. He popped open. It was a gross scene. That's what's going on here. Blood blisters all over their hands. Their backs are hurting. It's cruel torture. And Jesus comes to them in the midst of that. He came to them. I love how Mark says it. He says he came to them walking on the water. Walking on the sea. There's no like pomp and circumstance. He just says walking on the sea. Like that's a normal thing. Oh, by the way, he came to them walking on the sea. No big deal. But I want you to note something here. And there's lots of little applications we could get into. They were suffering. And they were right in the will of God. They were doing what they were asked to do. It wasn't for disobedience that they were suffering. So oftentimes we have a society that, in the Christian circle that looks at people that are suffering and say, I wonder what they did. No, these guys were doing exactly what Jesus had asked them to do. They were obeying. They were right in the very will of God. And they were suffering in the midst of it. Many times when we are right in the very will of God, we experience suffering and hardship. And it's a temptation to equate suffering with disobedience. But brothers and sisters, Jesus isn't out to get us. He's not watching for when we fail so that He can punish us. Punishment's already been taken care of. It's the cross. That's what we believe. Punishment is taken care of. He does discipline, but just because we are suffering doesn't necessarily mean it's because of disobedience. And there's another aspect of this, that spiritual progress in our own personal lives is very seldom a thing that happens without resistance. Almost always is there resistance when we are trying to make spiritual progress. And very seldom does it happen without it. Because why? We are in a very real spiritual battle. And Satan does not want to see success. 
Mark tells us that he meant to pass by. That is a phrase that caught my attention the first time I saw it. He meant to pass them by. And, and, and so you read that and you're like, what? Um, again, the idioms and the phraseology is fascinating. It's not that Jesus was trying to get in the passing lane to just go around them. The concept literally is the same wording from Exodus 33. When God says to Moses, I will pass by and you can see my glory. He wanted to be visible to them, so he passed by so that they would see him. This is the caring nature of Jesus, that he wants to be visible to them. He wants them to see them. The the amazing aspect of it that he sees in the midst of darkness. And so oftentimes we say to ourselves, I don't know that God really knows what my suffering is right now. I don't know that anybody sees. Nobody cares. We feel sorry for ourselves and we get into this place. And here's the reality. Jesus sees and he can see through a storm. He can see through the trials that you're facing and he comes to you in the midst of them. But there's also a calming nature in this. Imagine the scene, okay? They're rowing, which means they're facing where they're coming from. So they're facing the direction of Jesus. They're rowing. It's dark. It's probably 3 to 6 a.m. Somewhere in that time frame. I don't know about you, but I get scared of the dark. It's storming. So there's waves beating against the boat. The wind's blowing. We don't know how severe the storm is. We just know that it's severe enough that it's, it's really a work for them. They're exhausted. They had a spiritual high. They, they came back, gave these incredible reports about what had happened. It was a long day. They had, they had presented uh, the reports to Jesus. Then Jesus feeds these 5,000 people. This incredible thing happens. They get in the boat. It's a, just a boom, boom, boom. There's a rush of things, and, and, and they're probably exhausted. They're tired, and they've been rowing for eight to nine hours can you imagine when as you're doing that and you're looking back and you're like by the way i wonder where jesus is when's he gonna come and all of a sudden you see something on the on the the water and i don't think it was like the waves would cover him every once in a while like you could i think it was straight out and you know they're probably rowing and all of a sudden they like get a glimpse of something like i don't know like eyes playing tricks on me But then they realize that there's something out there. They've probably never seen anybody walking on water because I don't know about you, I've never seen anyone walking on water. In the dark. In a storm. It says that they were terrified. The Greek word for ghost is phantasma. Not just Casper, but a haunting fear. It says that they cried out, and the Greek there is the same Greek word for screeching like a demon. Bunch of little girls in the boat screaming. That's probably not fair to the girls. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, a phantasma, and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Look at what Jesus does. Mark's favorite word. Immediately, he spoke to them. Jesus knows. The response of Jesus, immediately he talks to them. And he's heard above the storm. Jesus doesn't need the noise to quiet down before he can be heard. He speaks through the darkness. He speaks through the storms. Matthew records the story of Peter walking on water at this point. Mark does not, for various reasons, most likely. That story always fascinates me, too, because side little humor, um, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, if that's you, who else would it be? Lord, if that's you, tell me to come out. Of course it is. But look at Jesus' words. He says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Some Greek lesson for you. It's present tense imperative. What does that mean? It means it's a command right now. Jesus says, stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. Brothers and sisters, Jesus can command our fears to stop. I don't know what your fears are in this life, but they can be commanded. And they can be commanded to stop. 
because we have a powerful Savior who says, stop. Jesus says, stop being afraid. Our medicine in times of fear is to command them to stop because we have Jesus. How many times over and over again in Scripture does Jesus say, do not worry, do not be afraid? Over and over again, He's commanding that. He has the power to command our fears. Why? 1 John in his epistle, in John's epistle, in 1 John 4.18, it says that this is perfect love. It casts out fear. We have a Savior who has taken away fear. doesn't mean we won't struggle with it, but guess what, brothers and sisters? When we are afraid, we can go to Jesus who says, stop. And He commands our fears. But that's not all he says. I want you to see this. He says, take heart, it is I. He says this in the original language, ego ami. You know what that is? It's the exact same words that God the Father, Jehovah, said to Moses in the burning bush. I am. Get what's going on here. Jesus knows that they are terrified out of their mind. They see some ghost that they think as they're walking through the storm, they're, they're, they're beyond exhausted. They're burdened with this horrific experience of crossing the sea. Some of them may have been saying, why did Jesus send us out here by ourselves? We had to go through this without him. We're out here and he's just out there on land. He knew the storm was coming and he sent us out here and they're going through all this. You can imagine all the things going in their mind and Jesus walks out on the water. He comes to them and he says, stop being afraid. I am. He's Jehovah. God sufficient. Take heart, for it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them. The concluding nature of this. His presence physically with them and what happens. And the wind ceased and they were utterly astonished. Storm ends. In fact, there's an incredible miracle that happens here that's not recorded by Mark. In John chapter 6, we're told that as soon as Jesus gets on the boat, they're on shore. Remember, we said that the Sea of Galilee is about seven miles wide. They're about three and a half in. And as soon as Jesus gets in, journey over. Instantaneously. We like, to, we like to take these things and try to scientifically explain them away. No, 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 brothers and sisters, this was a miracle. Jesus got in the boat, the storm stopped, they're on sea, no more rowing. Trial over. Experience done. When we invite Jesus in, when we see His presence class over, says that they were shocked by all this when the storm, this isn't the first time Jesus calmed a storm for them. Remember, just a couple of probably months ago in Mark chapter 4, it says that they went and woke Jesus up in the middle of the storm because they were petrified that they were all going to die even though they had the Messiah in the boat with them. And Jesus says, why were you afraid? And he calms and he speaks. He says, uh, winds be still. And everything stops instantaneously. And it says that they were in awe. And they said, what kind of man is this that he calms the winds and the waves? He commands them and they obey and now he gets in the boat. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything. He just gets in the boat and immediately the winds are over and they're on shore. And they're shocked by it. And Mark actually tells us why. In this kind of confusing little text. Verse 52. It says, For they did not understand about the loaves, that their hearts were hard. What? What does the loaves have to do with any of the story, right? Stephen alluded to this last week and, and, and he was spot on. But there's actually even more to it. Mark actually tells us the reason. Again, the original language implies that it wasn't just that they didn't understand the miracle. They missed it altogether. I don't know how this happened, but somehow they didn't know that Jesus took five loaves and two fish and multiplied them. They missed it altogether. together. 
They literally missed it because they didn't think about what he was capable of. Because they had become all too familiar with him. Their hearts became hardened. They were thinking probably about him being king. They were thinking about uh, overthrowing the Romans. They missed the whole point. Maybe it was because while he was doing the miracle, they were handing out that they missed it. I don't know, but the point is they missed it and their hearts had become hardened. They didn't think anything of it. They didn't give it. It's too easy for us as Christians. Oh, sure, Jesus could do that. But what's the logical explanation? Become too familiar with him, they took him for granted. How often do we harden our hearts and miss what Jesus wants to do in our trials? It's the very reason for the trial. And we miss it. Matthew tells us that this, at this point they stopped and they worshipped Him. It's the first time it's recorded in the Gospels that the disciples worshipped Jesus, saying truly He is the Son of God. Incredible, incredible scene, incredible thing. And then that's not even the end of it. It says that they reached the other side. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was and wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside. You can hear and read the excitement of Mark as he's writing this. They laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him uh, that they might touch even the fringe of his garments, and as many as touched it were made well. There's a public triumph. Incredible scene, right? People coming to him and getting healed by the hundreds and possibly even thousands. We don't even know all the accounts of it. In fact, John tells us at the end of his gospel, he says that if every story about Jesus was written, the whole world would be filled with volumes about Jesus. But we only wrote what you needed to know. So you imagine what's going on here. People being healed left and right. It says wherever, as many as touched, everybody that comes in contact with Jesus, they're running around the countryside bringing sick people to Jesus. This is an incredible scene. It's an incredible source too. We have a picture of the power of Jesus. And note that it's all about the weakness of man. There's no mention of the disciples, their abilities, their talents. There's no mention of what they did. It's all about Jesus. Why? Because Jesus doesn't need us to do anything for Him. He didn't even need a boat. But He looks at us and He says, I want to include you. It's a privilege. You don't fill some sort of void that I have that I need, but I want you to be a part of this. And there's incredible significance in this. This closing scene is a glimpse into what could be for those who rely on the power of Christ. Think about it. Is this not the picture of of what the church could be? I'm not talking about the, the healing necessarily, but this is a picture of men and women and children coming to Jesus. The whole region running and and bringing the sick. All made well, the goal. It tells us the man is broken and Christ is power. And I wonder, did the disciples learn the lesson that they needed? Maybe they had that temptation after their missionary journey. Look at all we did, Jesus. Look at these things that we did. We did incredible things. We healed sick people. We, we shared the gospel and we did all these incredible things. Jesus, isn't it great? Aren't you impressed with us? Fascinating stuff, Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and said, feed these 5,000 people. And then after they're all fed, you imagine the temptation as they handed out the food. Look at what we're accomplishing. We're feeding these thousands of people. This is amazing. Look at us, Jesus. Look at us feeding all these people. They're going to be so happy they want to make you king. You know, as a pastor, this is my struggle oftentimes. When I see what I think is fruitful, successful ministry. Hey, Jesus, look at what I accomplished. Look at what we did as a church. We handed out all these backpacks to the community and all these kids got free uh, school supplies. It was fantastic. We did this, Jesus. It was great. Aren't you proud of us? 
We're called to do these things, but if we think for a minute it's because of what we accomplish, we're fools. And Jesus is about to send us across the lake. And I think they got their clarity in their eight to nine hours of rowing and getting nowhere without Him. Did they see that true power comes from an understanding that we are weak and He is strong? Brothers and sisters, here's what I want to close with. Here's my challenge to us. Three things. Number one, we need to learn to be dependent upon Him. Dependence on Christ is not weakness. It is great power. We don't need books to tell us the keys to success in marriage, parenting, and ministry. Don't get me wrong. Those things are good. They're counsel and they have wisdom. But our dependence for any success in parenting, marriage, uh, walking the Christian life, in living what Christ demands of us as a church, all comes from the power of Jesus. Not from what man has written. It's not that those aren't good sources of counsel. Where are we looking for our help? Second, are you in a trial today? Are you struggling to make headway? The waves and the wind against you. Struggles of this life. Painful. It's torture. It's cruel. It's hardship. Know this, He sees you. He sees you. He sees you where you're at right now. Through the darkness. He sees you. He comes to you. Disciples were three and a half miles on the middle of a lake. Jesus walked on water to get to them. He comes to you. And He is speaking to you. We need to acknowledge our weakness and submit to His power for His glory. What glory does Christ get? What glory does He gain if I muscle through it? Yeah, I have a walking boot. I still did a 13-mile Spartan race. You know why? Because I'm stubborn. And... Because my wife said, oh, great. Now you're going to tell people all the time that you did a 13-mile race with a broken leg. It sounds good. Christ gets no glory from our muscling through things. Submit to him and say, God, I need you. And there is great glory. And the last thing I would challenge us with is this. Do we have a right concept of him? This story tells us what the church could be. It could be this amazing thing where people are being made well. And if our concept is that Christ is just a captain that we uh, are taking orders from and, and going about and doing business, uh, and then we are doing the actual work, then we have missed the right concept of who He is. The reality is this, that He is our power, our strength. The reality is that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that we, in all of our works, have failed miserably. And no matter what we do, we will always fail. And that Romans just gives this incredible picture of who we are as human beings. We are a, a, a people that have no desire to please God, no desire to do what is right, no desire to seek after Him, that our lips are filled with venom and that we are filled with poison and that our works are like that of murderers, slanderers, and thieves. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And here is the goodness. Here is the right concept of Him. He came to live and die and to make payment for all of our wrong. And it's not just that He's our captain telling us what to do. He is actually our vessel and our power and our strength to do. And we need to yield to that. And we can find great power. Imagine a church that said, you know what, it's not that we look to God for help. Imagine a church that said, we look to God to do. Because He can do far greater and abundant than we, we could ever do. Worship team's going to come up. And like I said, I don't know what trials you're going through. If you need prayer, this is the place to do it. You can do it anywhere, but this is a place where brothers and sisters, your family, because that's what we are as a family, we gather around and we say, you know what, 
Jesus is here. And He wants to walk with you and He wants to take you. And He wants to do. And He wants to teach. So we're going to pray and if you need prayer, don't be so prideful to think that you can just get through it. Don't think that you can just row through when you're not going anywhere. Let the body be the hands and feet of Christ. It doesn't have to be an elder. It doesn't have to be a deacon. It could be somebody right next to you. Just say, you know what? This is my trial. I've been stuck here for 12 months, and I can't get past it. I've been stuck here for 12 years, and I can't get past it. And you know what? You never will. Jesus sees you, and He has provided people because He has filled us with His Holy Spirit and dwelling in us to speak and to love one another as a family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You do not send us into some trial to learn a lesson we cannot learn. But You have a desire to conform us into the image of Your Son and You have a desire to take away the dross, the sin, the pride, the self-will, and to cast that aside. Lord, I pray that You would forgive us where we have said, I am enough. Lord, would we come to You and would we say, Lord, we need You. We need You so desperately. You are our hope. You are our salvation. We could never be made right in the eyes of God without You. And first and foremost, we rejoice and we worship You because You are a God of hope and salvation and You have delivered from sin and bondage. Lord, I pray for those here today that are in some trial that they can't get through. And Lord, the heartaches, the struggles, the sorrows that they are facing are real. And Lord, You see them. And You speak to them. And you tell them that you are God. And you come. And we rejoice in that. We thank you, Jesus. We pray in your son's precious name. In Jesus' name, amen.